0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. About a year ago, my neighbor came to me and he said, Matthew, I need to talk to you. I'm thinking, who calls me Matthew, you know, so um, apparently he knew something about me that I didn't know, but then he says, um, he shows me a downspout on the, on the side of his house that has some dents on it, this gutter downspout, and he's claiming that my grandchildren made these dents by throwing things across his yard. And I started getting like angry and defensive because my grandchildren are small and they're weak and they're adorable and, and, and I just thought they couldn't possibly do this. And so, um, and then it, I realized it wasn't my grandchildren, it was my three growing sons. And so I said, you know, i sorry we got off to the wrong start here, but you know what I think happened here? I think it's my sons. Because they're big, and they're large, and they're not adorable, and they throw Frisbees, and they throw that Frisbee like really hard, and so they could easily have dented this. I'm sorry, I'll talk to them, hopefully this will not happen again. So, and then he said, oh, by the way, just want to let you know, I've been Googling you. And I thought, oh, uh, you know, interesting. He said, uh, I said, why'd you want to do that? He said, well, I'm in security. I just gotta check people out. Everybody's got dirt on them, so I just wanted to check you out. So they say, oh, okay, Uh, you're a pastor. uh Uh-oh, yeah, I try to be. Um," He said, you know, I'm not a religious guy, but I've listened to some of your talks and they're kind of interesting. And I thought, well, that's what my people say about it, you know? Kind of interesting. <laughs> so, that was a, you know, if he, if he had some dirt on me, he wasn't willing to divulge it, which was very nice out of him because I'm sure he could find it. And I thought of this I walked away and I thought, you know, what is it like when people make assumptions about you that may not be true or fair? They're checking you out. They're actually maybe even looking for dirt on you. And maybe they're doing it because of your faith or because you bear the name of Jesus. Now, this has been a problem in the church throughout 2,000 years. And it was a problem in the early church that the Apostle Peter is actually addressing in his letter called 1 Peter. So let me give you a little bit of context. So when he was writing this, probably 35 years after... It's close to 35 years after the resurrection of Jesus um, in, from Rome to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And historians, based on some pretty good records, estimate that there were probably about 10,000 followers of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire at this time. That's .01% of the population follow Jesus. They don't have, really have any resources they don't have a political party, they don't have political clout, they don't own buildings, they don't own printing presses. They're just just—they're not known for being rich or powerful people. And bad things are being said about them. They are being called haters of humanity because they wouldn't do things like participate in the gladiatorial games where people would watch from a stadium and watch people kill each other with spears or watch lions tear human beings apart, and the Christians wouldn't participate in this. So they were haters of humanity. They were called cannibals, because they say they eat the body and blood of Jesus. They were called atheists, because they don't worship the Roman's God. All kinds of terrible things were, were said about them, and assumptions were made about them. And people were constantly checking them out, and constantly deciding that these are not decent, good people. Now you think Peter might say, he might write in this letter, that we just heard read, oh, people, this is terrible. This is so bad. This is so unfair. We are being treated so unfairly. We're being so persecuted. It's so hard. You know, we gotta, we gotta fight back. We gotta defend ourselves. We need, a, higher, we need a, a PR campaign to prove that we're not all these terrible things. Peter doesn't say that. Instead, he says, hey, church, this is awesome. It's awesome that people are saying bad things about you. It's so incredible that they're they're being unfair to you. It's a great opportunity that people are persecuting you. So it's an open door for you to show the glory of Jesus. So he says, church, this is your moment to shine, not your moment to go hide, not your moment to just be fearful or angry or defensive. It is your time to pursue and display Jesus-like goodness towards others around you. Look at verse 12, for instance. And if you want to follow along, I invite you to do so. We're just going to walk through this pretty much verse by verse. Um, Verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So for Peter, Gentiles is a phrase that means those who do not follow Jesus. And many of them are from a Gentile background. So... He calls them Gentiles. Keep it honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 15, he says something very similar. He says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Then in chapter 3, if you flip over, he says something almost sim- The same thing, verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, but when, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So here's this strategy. You don't need a PR firm, you don't need power, you don't need to take control, you just stay in your lane and keep displaying Christ-like goodness and then you let God take care of the rest. That's basically one of the main themes of First Peter. So I wanna look at this, what does it mean to be a good person? If we're called to a life of Jesus-like goodness, what does that look like? And I wanna talk about three traits of Jesus-like goodness from this passage. It's personal, it's communal, it's us all together, and it's vulnerable. It's we open our heart to suffering and it makes us vulnerable. So first, let's look at the personal part of it. Verse eleven. I want to focus in on, on one word, beloved. I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. So that word "passions" there literally means desire. It's a Greek word for desire, and it can mean good desires or it can mean bad desires. It can mean either one based on the context. Peter uses that word eight times. Every time he uses it, he refers to bad. He's referring to bad desire bad passion, disordered passion, passion that gets misdirected. It's like, I mean, we all have passions, so we can't be passionless. We, we want to have passions. They can be good, but it's like a river, and it overflows the banks, and it gets out of control, and it does damage. So we can desire wrong things, or we can desire wrong, right things, good things, in the wrong way. So, for instance, we can desire intimacy. We want closeness. We want people to love us. We want we want intimacy with people and we desire that so much that we'll blow through barriers. We'll blow, blow through boundaries just to get what we think is intimacy. Or we desire health. Health is a good thing. Sickness is not a good thing. I want to be healthy. So that's a good thing. I think you should feel good about trying to be healthy. But sometimes we can be so focused on being healthy that we literally make ourselves sick with anxiety about our health that has been possible. We can desire to be noticed, and then we worry so much about our image or what people think of us, or we can desire security through money or success. Those are not necessarily bad things, but we desire them so much, we desire them the wrong way, it gets twisted. And again, we're like the river that's overflowing the banks. And Peter says, this is a basic problem of the entire human race, and he says these passions, in verse 11, he says they wage war against your soul. So if you ever feel like you're in a battle, feel like, wow, I'm just battling disordered desires, the reason for that is you are, and that's normal. I mean, we want to get out of it. We want to grow out of it. We want to get better at it, but we're in a battle with our unholy, disordered desires. But the thing I find so hopeful and tender about this passage is that it just assumes we all got this. We all have this problem. And we're, none of us are immune to us. None of us are exempt to us. None of us can get vaccinated from it. We all have it. It's all our problem. And Jesus is the master, healer, and restorer of our disorderedness. Look at verse 24 with me. Peter says, he himself, referring to Jesus, bore our sins In his body on the tree, referring back to probably a verse in Deuteronomy where it says everyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. So Jesus took the curse of sin for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Quoting from Isaiah 53. So steeped in the Old Testament scripture. By his wounds we are healed. See, I think the thing that's really surprising is that we think, okay, if I'm going to be a good person, that means I, I need to be better than other people I know. I need to be gooder. I need to be verifiably good. Prove that I am good. Now, we are growing in goodness. We want to grow in goodness. We, hung, we should hunger for it. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But it starts, being a good person starts by admitting I got a lot of wounds. I got a lot of sins I'm dealing with. I got a lot of baggage. But Jesus is the healer and the restorer. Last August, when I walked into the cancer center, this big, huge cancer center with hundreds of people in there, because I had cancer, and then I was declared cancer free, but when I walked into that, you have to fill out this form, and you answer questions like, can you still walk? Can you still swallow? Are you in constant pain? No, no, no. I'm thinking, I'm doing pretty well. I'm not as sick as a lot of people in here. And then I looked around and I remembered, I am in a cancer center, though. And I'm here because if this doesn't get treated, I will probably die. So we're pretty much all in the same boat, aren't we? We are all need an outside intervention to save us. And that's the gospel, that's where it starts. So the church is the place where it is safe, where it is acceptable, where it is normal to have wounds and sin and even deal with our disordered desires. And to be honest and to receive prayer and to confess our sins. So goodness doesn't mean soaring above everybody. It means taking the lowly road of saying, here's my sins, here's my weaknesses bring them to the Lord. I bring them to the church. So it's personal. It's also communal. Um, Peter deals with two examples here. Verse 13, he talks about relating to institutions, especially institutions of authority, the government, the emperor. And I'm not going to talk about that today, not because it's not important. Maybe in October 2024, I can talk about, somebody could talk about that right before the election, the presidential election. That would be awesome. But Just for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on the second example he gives, which starts in verse 18, which is the institution of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. So it seems kind of tricky. Like, does the church endorse slavery? Uh, No. But actually, I don't think it's that tricky, especially if we understand the context. So here's the context. Greco-Roman slavery is a different category. I mean, it's still slavery, and slavery is bad, and it's not God's plan, and it's not God's design, but it's a different category from the brutal and cruel reality and legacy of slavery in our country. So this is a little, it's a different category. So for instance, scholars estimate that maybe 30 to 40 percent of the entire population was a slave, and the, Greco- the Romans, they, they conquered people, and they just made everybody a slave. So they, it was cut across racial and ethnic lines. For some, or perhaps even many slaves, it was the best opportunity for economic advancement to survive. Slaves could own property. Slaves could become important professions. But it was still degrading, and it could still be abusive. And it was still not God's plan. So what did the church do? I think the strategy was ultimately more effective. It might have been slower, but remember, you're .01% of the population. You're gonna vote out the Emperor Nero? You're gonna picket at his house? I don't think so. You don't have any power. So what are you gonna do? You be the church you be a jesus-centered church that's what you do so you be the ones who in verse 9 you were called out you're called by god you were once not called but now you're called you once were not a people but now you are god's people and you're god's people together slave and free so verse chapter 4 verses 8 9 and 10 above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Do you know what's absent from those verses? Those beautiful verses of Christian community? What's absent is well, unless you're a slave or slaves have these rules, free people have these rules. It's You're the church. You are all people who had not received mercy and now you receive mercy. You are people that were lost and now you're found. So you would have different classes different ethnic groups different racial groups brothers and sisters in each other's homes showing hospitality sitting around the kitchen table kids playing with each other the slave could be a leader of the church you could go over to the side and receive prayer it could be a slave could be a free person slave could have been one of the elders there was no class or racial or slave free distinctions that is revolutionary it was Extended release revolution of the power of the powerless to lead and speak and be in communion with the powerful. It is revolutionary. The church, you can follow this track throughout church history. You can see where Paul condemns slave traders in First Timothy. You can see where the book of Revelation condemns slave traders. You can see Christian leaders like Gregory the Great and Patrick condemning slavery. You can see the abolition movement in England in the 1800s, which was all evangelical Christians, almost all evangelical Christians working together. That is the power of this quiet, steadfast, Jesus-like community that we are called to embody in this church. How do we do that? Well, a couple examples. Let me give you a couple concrete examples. So, We have our Thrive ministry, ministry to parents and families impacted by disabilities. I'm gonna tell you a story about a young man with disabilities who was at one of my previous churches. young guy named Alan came to church every Sunday, Down syndrome, he was dropped off every Sunday, came by himself, sat in the front row, had a nice suit on and a tie on, always sharply dressed. And every time the offertory plate would come around, he would pull out his wallet, he'd take out a dollar bill. And this was like an Ethiopian coffee ceremony. If you've ever been to an Ethiopian restaurant, this is like he would stretch it out, he would look at it, he would make it nice and tight, nice and pretty, get the wrinkles out of it, then he'd kind of twirl it around and drop it in the plate, you know. He wasn't doing it to make a show. He didn't care that people were looking at him. It was an act of worship. So when I think, who are the people that have taught me the most about generosity? Not necessarily Bible scholars. I've learned a lot from them. Rich people, I've learned a lot from them. They can be really generous. But Alan is one of my main mentors. When I want a picture of generosity, it's Alan. That's where the powerless live in communion with the powerful, and we learn from each other, and that's the church. So I said it's it's personal, it's communal, it's also vulnerable. We open ourselves up to suffering. So if you want to be good, if you want to be a good person, like Jesus is good, it will open you up to suffering, either your own or the suffering of a suffering world. Now, let me just say, also, it's good to have boundaries. It's good to have to be safe. It's good to not put yourself into situations where you're going to be Abused, and so I'm. I'm all for that. I'm not saying anything against that. But for most of us, being following Jesus is going to put us in situations where we are woundable. We can be wounded by other people. Look at this. Uh, the passage again, verse 21. For to this you have been called. Now, earlier, Peter said, you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's one way we've been called. That's the good, the beauty of our calling. But then there's also this suffering reality. But to this you have been called in verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. I remember when I was a kid, lots of snow in Minnesota, little kid, you need like an adult to go with like my dad, his big boots, and then I would just kind of like follow in the tracks, you know, and then I could walk. Peter's saying something like that. Jesus has left his footprints in the snow. You can follow him, follow his trail. And if you follow him, you're going to follow him eventually into suffering. Look at verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin. So here's Jesus, son of God, never had disordered desires. Always been desiring the right things in the right way. Never sinful thought, never sinful action. What happened to him? He should be rewarded, right? Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Ultimately, God is the God of justice. God will have justice. God will bring about justice. But sometimes we have to wait to see that happen. You know, in our, in our service, in the liturgy, in just a few minutes, Father Brett will, will lift the cup, the chalice of wine, the, the shed blood of Jesus for our sins. He'll lift the host, his body broken for us, lift it up, and then all of you will say this great amen. Do you know what you're doing? You know what we're all doing? I had to think about it this week. That is the God who has suffered for us, who became flesh in Jesus. I am in the Father and the Father is in you, as Jesus said in our Gospel reading. And he suffered for us and with us. We are not alone in our suffering. So at the the highest point of the service, we're celebrating that God became the lowest one. In in Jesus, God, that God the Son became the lowest one for us. Now sometimes we do this, we suffer in big ways. There's two families in our church that have spent years or decades working on the Bible, translating it into the mother tongue of people groups that do not have the scriptures and may not even have a written language. So these these two families in our church have spent years or decades working on this, sometime in the midst of war, in the midst of evacuations and health issues and teams forming and teams falling apart. And then finally... These groups, these people groups have the Bible in their mother tongue. Now, we don't think this is a miracle, but to them, if you've ever seen the videos of people getting the Bible in their own mother tongue, oh my gosh, you can, you'll, you'll weep watching these videos, how much it means to them. Because not only do they have the word of God in their own language, but also it has ennobled and it lifted up their entire culture. It's a tangible sign of God's love for them as a whole group of people that they matter, that their language matters, that the way they speak matters, that just people that speak English aren't the only ones that matter. They matter, that means so much, and yet these people walked into vulnerability, these, these translators, for years. I just find that so moving. Sometimes we may be vulnerable in little ways, like for instance, Peter says in chapter three, he says, you need to be ready, you need to be ready to give a defense, to explain to people why you have this hope. Why do you believe this vision of goodness? Well, you need to be ready to speak it. And once we, you know, it's one thing to just say, hey, watch my life, I'm, um, try to follow Jesus, you know, but then to say, let me explain to you why. That's a place of deep vulnerability. We can get hurt by that or we can feel like maybe we, we overshared. I, I'll tell you a story. So I was, I was dropping off my car at Jiffy Lube, and it has this nasty dent on the driver's side. And the guy was asking, oh, dude, that's bad. And I go, yeah, I know. He said, how did that happen? Well, okay. It was the day I got this cancer diagnosis, which um, it rattled me. I was backing up. I wasn't paying attention. And I just scraped the door. The guy goes, oh, that's bad. That's terrible. I said, yeah. But then, I had this miraculous healing from the cancer, and the Lord saved my life, and I'm just so grateful for it. And he goes, oh, wow. And I'm thinking, that was too much information, you know? (laughs) And the guy, that dude just wants to change my oil. So uh, I go in, and I'm, I'm paying the bill, and the guy goes, you read your Bible? I said, yeah, do you? He said, no, man, I just, I can't. I don't know, I just can't get into it. I said, I'm gonna bring you a Bible. Bring your Bible, we'll talk about it. So I just felt like, I don't know, I just, I don't know where that came from, but it's like, he's the guy's gotta know the whole, this is the story, you know? So why not just tell it to him? But that put me in a vulnerable place. Some of you may be in a vulnerable place. You're, you're loving someone that's difficult to love back. You're in a difficult situation in the workplace. And, and, and you're trying to walk with integrity and it's hard, or you're, you're trying to forgive and it, it's hard, And you're walking, or maybe you're walking beside somebody that's suffering and it hurts that, that they hurt. We are all vulnerable. And you know what? No matter how you live your life, whether you follow Jesus or not, you're going to be vulnerable. So Peter basically says, you might as well do it for the Lord's sake. Do it for him. Do it under his lordship. So, Two things that I think Peter wants us to know from this passage. First, vision for the church. I think he wants the church, us, to be people that first of all say, I'm going to pursue goodness. I'm not there. I have so far to go. I might have had a good week. I might have had a bad week. But I'm going to go after it. I'm not just going to play around with this. I want, Jesus, I want you to make me more like you. And even if you don't know if you want that, ask Jesus to help you want that. Ask him to change your desires. Second thing is, we pursue goodness. But more than that, we pursue Jesus, the source of goodness. I love the way he ends this little section. Verse 25, he says, For you were strained like lost sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's, again, Isaiah 53, the story of every follower of Jesus. We stray, we need to come back. We stray, we find ourselves straying. or somebody confronts us, we come back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls because he's the source of goodness and he never runs dry. You say, I don't just need a trickle of goodness today. I need a river of goodness, I need a waterfall of goodness, I need an ocean of goodness. And Jesus says, okay, I got it for you. You start the day, I'll give it to you. You end the day, I'll give it to you. Because he keeps forgiving, empowering, filling, guiding, working in and through those who return to the shepherd and overseeing of their souls. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.